Today we're going to be in Matthew chapter 6, and we've been covering the Sermon on the Mount. And today, chapter 6 is really a continuation. Uh, we know that chapter delineations came much later. Uh, it was decided many years later to, to break up the chapters, but God's word was God's word. Uh, so understand that this really is, is in the same harmony of what we covered uh, two Sundays ago. And I think the challenge here that we'll see is, you know, when Jesus went up to, the, to this particular area, it said that his disciples came up with him. It didn't say that the masses followed him. So understand that some have tried to take the Sermon on the Mount and said, hey, if everybody in the world could live like this, the world would be a better place. Absolutely. But as you really go through the Sermon on the Mount, you find that it's very difficult uh, to live this way unless you're in the spirit. So this is really a challenge as we as believers look at the scripture and we're really challenged to step up and have a hunger for a spiritual growth. And as we look at it, maybe we're convicted in some areas. Uh, maybe some areas we do okay. But it really is a good uh, introspective look at each one of us and see what type of life that we're living. So I'm going to start with verse 1 in chapter 6. It says, Jesus says, Take heed that you do not do your charitable deeds before men to be seen by them. Otherwise, you have no reward from your Father in heaven. Therefore, when you do a charitable deed, do not sound a trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may have glory from men. Assuredly, I say to you, they have their reward. But when you do a charitable deed, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, that your charitable deed may be done in secret. And your Father in heaven who sees in secret will, will himself reward you openly. So we left off with Jesus teaching on love, and today we're starting with charitable deeds, which really is uh, related to love if you think about it. So get the, the chapter idea, let's put that aside and look at this as a whole teaching. Jesus didn't stop and say, okay, chapter 6, you know, so understand that. But we see three areas uh, that are challenged, especially in that society. We're going to look at uh, charitable deeds, prayer, and fasting. And again, it would be a shame if we didn't look at these same issues in light of our society today. So right away, we see the issue of motives behind what we do. Now, in the judgment, 1 Corinthians 3, which we covered some time ago, we see that our motives are tested by fire. Amazing. And I, you know, some of the things that Jesus speaks about in Paul and the disciples and uh, saying, well, this is going to happen. And in your mind, you try to figure out what's the judgment going to look like, how a thing is going to play out. But in a way, what we do, our good deeds, so to speak, will be tested by fire. And some of those good deeds will just burn up and there'll be nothing left. There'll be nothing to say. God will have nothing to say to us in the judgment regarding our good deeds because our motives will be wrong. And we all can admit, I can admit myself that there are times that I've done things out of pure motives and then there's things that I've done with not pure motives. And that's what it comes down to. So whether it's back then or today, there's a right way and a wrong way to do things. We can see hospital wings. You know, if you are observant, you walk through the hallways and there'll be plaques with a person's name on it. Donated by such and such, Mr. So-and-so. Okay, give a big donation and his name will be on there long after he's, uh, he's dead and gone. His name will be on that plaque. Street names are named after people. If you give to a charity, if it's maybe not a, a Christian charity, there'll be rankings, and you'll have your name, you know, the zero to $50 club, and the 50 to 500, and the big spenders, 10,000 and above, you know, you get this little thing, and your name is in print. But what about churches? You would think that there should be never a place 
Never a church where there's plaques on the pews or plaques on the walls talking about big givers. But we see them all the time. Jesus is speaking against this type of thing. And I would just say this, get as much mileage out of it as you can here, because in the afterlife, it's not even going to be spoken about, about according to what Jesus says here. Now, the context is that Jesus is exposing the chicanery, the ruse, the um, hypocrisy of the religious system, which is most loathsome. Uh, again, you can look at certain behaviors and certain teachings and certain denominations and the way they do things with uh, ministers always begging for money with the promise of telling everybody that this is how much money you gave. And what they do is they, they um, lift up your ego. So that man, that minister is really using you when he does that. Because in your, in your flesh, there's a desire to be noticed. And if you write a big enough check, in some services, they'll say, I, I can, there's 20 people here who want to write $1,000, you know, please stand up. And everybody starts clapping. Jesus said, don't do that. So why is it still being done? He says, don't let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. And again, this is more hyperbole that Jesus used. He, he, he would stimulate us to think. So if you think about giving and I'm writing a check and I'm holding the checkbook with the left hand and the right hand I'm writing, how does my left hand not know what my right hand is doing? What Jesus was doing is he, he would use such exaggerations that would, you would sit there and think, left hand, right hand, is there a way if I put this behind my back? And You know, you start to, it starts to stimulate the thought. But basically what he's saying is, don't make a big deal about it. Now, does this mean that everything we do must be anonymous? No. In the book of Acts, we saw a certain giving where the, uh, the members of the church would come together and bring it uh, to the disciples so other people could see it. We know even today in our current system of government that if you tithe or you give and you write a check, you'll get your statement back and you can write it off on your taxes. Why should the government get any more money from us than they deserve? Uh, we're, we're really helping to foster uh, charitable behavior as believers, so there is uh, what we call a write-off. But uh, when we look at this too, I mean, gee, if, if I'm sitting here and I look at Harold sitting in the front row and I say, Harold, you know, the Lord put it on my heart. You're struggling with the rent. And I walk up to you and I hand you $200 and say, this is from the Lord. Who gets the glory? I shouldn't get the glory because it was the Lord who put, me, put him on my heart, and I wouldn't have known better had the Lord not said something to me. So let's look at this in context. The point was God was disgusted with what charity had become. You see, love was no longer the motivator, and love should be the motivator. We love God, so we want to emulate him. We want to be Christ-like. And we love our fellow man who's struggling. But at the time that Jesus came, the society was a mess. And the things that people did, supposedly under the guise of religious behavior, had become a ruse. They had become hypocritical. So self-glorification was elevated now above love being the motivator. And Jesus said this, when you do your charitable deeds. He didn't say if. God expects us to help others, especially if we have the means. And you see another brother struggling. The book of James tells us that. How can you say to someone who has no clothes and has no food, be warm and filled, but I'm busy. You know, I got to run out here. I hope somebody takes care of you. James says, where is your faith? That is not saving faith. So it needs to be motivated out of love. Verse 5. And when you pray, you shall not be like the hypocrites, for they love to pray standing in the synagogues 
and on the corners of the street, that they may be seen by men. Assuredly, I say to you, they have their reward. But you, when you pray, go into your room, and when you have shut your door, pray to the Father, to your Father who is in the secret place, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you openly. But when you pray, do not use vain repetitions as the heathen do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Therefore, do not be like them, for your Father knows the things you have need of before you ask him. So the second area is prayer. Now, the religious leaders back then made a show of prayer. They would uh, wear certain garments. They would go at a certain time when it was the busiest uh, time on the street that everybody could see them. They would uh, memorize, and I've seen this done, they would memorize their prayers and pray in a very lofty, um, you know, melodious type of prayer, and it sounded so nice to the people standing on the corners, but it wasn't genuine. It was more theater. Jesus says, no, go into your room. Now, does that mean that we can't have corporate prayer? No, it doesn't mean that. The Bible gives examples of corporate prayer. We pray together. But the suggestion is intimacy with God. Again, they were hypocritical. Everything they did was a veneer of spirituality. It was done for a show. When they went home, did they pray the same way? If they even prayed at all, probably not. So the question is, do we have intimacy with God? Uh, And if we don't have intimacy with God, the hypocrisy is to look more spiritual. The truth is none of us arrive. And the truth is all of us, including me, can always do better and always spend more time with the Lord. I, I was part of a ministry years ago, and, and it was a large ministry, and there was one guy who, who came to me quietly, and he said, I don't want to pray because everyone sounds so polished here. And he was genuine, and he said, I, I'll probably stumble over my words. I said, that prayer will probably be heard the most. You pray. You go, and you, it doesn't matter who's listening. God wants to hear our heart. We're talking to him. That's what prayer is. Verse 7 He says, do not use vain repetitions as the heathen do, for they think they will be heard for their many words. See, we don't say our prayers. Kind of reminds me of Bugs Bunny. Say your prayers, wabbit. Remember that? (laughs) But we pray. (laughs) Pastor Anthony's going to love that. He loves Bugs Bunny. It's a relationship. We're talking to our Father in heaven. We worship him. We're communicating with him. And it's beautiful. Back then, the pagans chanted, they had a mantra, they had repetitions. Remember, their gods were not real, and they didn't hear from their gods, so they would constantly do these things. And, and the prophets of Baal uh, with uh, Elijah, when he, when he was dueling with them, they cut themselves and they mutilated themselves because they really wanted their god to hear them, and their god didn't hear. And, and, and Elijah, his prayer was genu- genuine, and God heard him and answered his prayer. Now, I would say this, thousands of years later, we do things that we probably shouldn't do in the name of religion, but it's what the religion does, so we follow it. I will tell you this, when I was a kid, I had rosary beads, I did my peasant penance, you know, I would say our fathers and I would say Hail Marys, but what does God hear when you say that type of thing? That's vain repetition. What happens is the meaning gets lost. It doesn't mean anything anymore. They're words. See, we use words to express ourselves. As a matter of fact, if I close my eyes and I didn't say anything, I could still pray to God. He can hear me. You know, it's in your mind. God can read your mind. 
So words are basically an expression. They're a vehicle. So we don't worship the words and we don't worship the methods. We worship God and we forget that. So what happens is, is if you say something over and over and over again, it loses its meaning. Now on the other extreme is nothingness. I don't know if you've ever heard of contemplative prayer. That's starting to catch on. And listen, this stuff isn't popular, but I don't come here to be popular. And when we read the Bible from the pulpit, that's why a lot of pastors don't do that anymore. Because you read it, you get convicted. Well, that's what my denomination does, you know. Uh, you mean I'm not supposed to do that? Yes, that's what God's word is designed to do. It's a sword. You know, it cuts through the nonsense. It exposes, you know, uh, joints and marrow and spirit and, and all those kind of things. Uh, but that's what it's supposed to do. Contemplative prayer is also known as spiritual formation. When this started, this was a form of transcendental meditation. It was started by a quasi-religious group, and it was taken from Eastern mysticism and brought in, and you, you empty your mind, and you think of nothingness. The gospel, Jesus, is not part of this. And you, you open up yourself to suggestions of what can come into your mind. No. We're supposed to meditate, but we meditate on God's word. We meditate on God's character. We don't meditate on nothingness, hoping something will pop into our minds. So you can see both extremes, and the devil loves to operate in the extremes. Luke 11.1 adds that one of Jesus' disciples asked him, teach us how to pray. The disciples wanted to know what God's desire was for them. And isn't that the point? So many new methods are coming out. And, and we all run to these, you know, the, the Christian community runs to these new methods, this new book, this new pastor, this new way. All we have to do is go back to the way. And what are we saying when we do that? God's way is the right way. It's timeless. It's the living word. It never changes. So we can say, well, we don't have our religious leaders standing on the street corners and, and having long flowing ropes. Yeah, but we can still make an application today. So verse 8, Jesus says, Therefore do not be like them, for your Father knows the things you have need of before you ask him. And again, it piques our curiosity when Jesus says these things. So if God knows, and I've heard this, so if God knows what I'm going to ask before I'm going to ask it, why bother asking it, right? That whole logic thing. God's will is to bless us. But he also won't go against our free will. See, that's where the hyper-sovereignists have it wrong. God is sovereign, but he's also designed us as free moral agents. We have a free will. And he has his will, right? If we pray anything against his will that's evil, maybe, not, maybe unwittingly, he's certainly not going to grant it. But we also have a will. And when we come to God, we open ourselves up and say, Lord, I'm open. There's times that we open up the floodgates Lord, I'm really struggling. Whatever it is that you have to do to get my attention <laughs> in this matter and, and get me through it, I'm open to it. You'd be surprised to see what happens after that, right? Because we're opening up our will to the Lord. This is the harmony of relationship. Now, I wonder how many things we all may have missed out because we didn't pray, that we didn't express our will, that we were so busy with our own little worlds and we just go to God when we need him. What have we missed out on in life? Because we have a slack prayer life. I think about if, if you can relate this relationship issue to my parents. My parents will call me for no reason at all. <laughs> I think that this, you know, I see the number and I love to hear my parents. But they just call me 
to hear my voice. They call me to talk to me. They call me to reinforce the relationship that we have. And I will do that too. Gee, some time has passed. Let me call my mom. Let me call my dad. It's a, it's a relational thing. And I will say this. If, if there's anything I've learned by studying the Bible, it's a relationship. And I would say this to anybody here. You've come in. Maybe you come in with a relative, a friend. This is the first time you've, can't, you've come to church. This is the first time you're being exposed to the Bible. God loves you. He loves you so much that he gave his only begotten son to die for your sins. You as an individual. We as a group. But you and you and you as an individual. Loves you so much that if you or anybody receive him, believe on him, he's your Lord and Savior, you will not perish, but you will have eternal life. Now, that is open to every single person here on this snowy morning. It's true. Jesus said, when you pray, again, God expects to hear from us. If you go to a marriage counselor or anybody who has practice in that area and they counsel and they're good counselors, If you ask them, what is the biggest uh, factor to destroying any relationship? They will tell you the breakdown in communication. What is prayer? Talking to our Father in heaven. The breakdown. Marriages end up in divorce. Children become estranged from their parents. You see this type of stuff. It's a breakdown in communication. I know how I feel, and you know how you feel, but we're not expressing it and we're not communicating, and there becomes a rift. And that's where the relationship starts to go sour. So it's communication. Verse 9. Jesus says, in this manner, therefore, pray. In this manner. If my son came up to me, and, and he greeted me, and he said, Hi, Daddy, how are you? Oh, good. How are you, son? Hi, Daddy, how are you? I said I was good. Hi, Daddy, how are you? I'd be like, did you hit your head? Is something wrong with you? See, Jesus says in this manner. He doesn't say to repeat this over and over again. It doesn't make any sense. My son has Asperger's, so he will do that sometimes. And he got on this kick where he would say, I love you, Mommy. I love you, Daddy, like a 100 times a day. And we had to sit him down and say, listen, when you keep saying that word, you're wearing out the meaning. You're wearing out the value of that word. It's great. You know, and please, you say, what kind of a parent is he? He doesn't want his kid to say, I love you. You know what I'm saying? It just is over and over, and it's just a, it becomes more of a routine than a heartfelt meaning. That's a perfect example. You're wearing out the meaning of that word. So in this manner, pray to the Lord. Now, some have called this the Lord's Prayer. Others have called it the Disciple Prayer. But really, it is a model prayer for all believers. Verse 9, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. I was taught in writing class to always know your audience. Who are we speaking to? And depending on who you're speaking to is depending on how you will address that person. God is a person. He is God. So since he is God, we address him with respect. Now, before we get to the respect part, let's start with this. And (laughs) out of all the years I've read the Bible, this just hit me. Father, Father, Daddy, Abba, we see in some portions of Scripture, Father, hmm. Back then, the Jews, the pious Jews, would have said Hashem, which means the name. They won't even say his name. Forget about calling him Father or Daddy. I've been in a lot of homes of Muslim people, and they have these plaques, and they're in Arabic, and uh, they're translated into English, and there's like 
all these different lists of characteristics for God, like a hundred of them. God is glorious. God is mighty. All these names for God. I have not yet to find one that says God is daddy. So I will say this to you. Again, whoever you are here, this is relevant for you. God loves you, right? For the teenager who maybe is having a difficulty, you know, um, really grasping God's word and the hormonal changes and the peer pressure and, you know, everything that's going on in your life, this is relevant for you. And understand this, where the biological father will fail and fall short. Listen, I, I try to be the best father I can, but I have failed my son at times because I'm flawed, I'm sinful. Where the biological father will fail you, God will not ever fail you. And I will tell you that in, in counseling, and I've done over the years, sometimes the biggest impediment for somebody to receive the love of God is to get past the whole paternal, the whole father issue. Fathers in this world abandon their kids. They do bad things to their kids. They abuse their children, bad fathers. And somebody who has come from that background has a really hard time with the concept of father. And that is the roadblock that I have to try to help them to get past so they can pave the way to be understanding their daddy in heaven. And that can be a challenge. Satan will always try to ruin good relationships. You see, with everything in the world, so the ultimate father, the ultimate daddy, the one who will never let you down, sometimes we become jaded because of relationships that we have on this earth. But God loves you. Who art in heaven? He is in heaven. That's where his throne room is, and that's where he is sovereign over all creation. Hallowed be thy name, holy, pure, a term of respect. I find it interesting when you watch the nudes and they, and they talk to, Bill Clinton's been in the news lately, and how many years has he, has he been in out of office? But it is, a, it is understood by the person who's interviewing that they call him Mr. President. He still retains that title, senator, congressman, congresswoman, right? God deserves a title and a name of respect over all other names, And we know that Jesus is the King of kings and Lord of lords. Verse 10. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Understand this manner, this this model, this template. As we go through, we we have a great understanding of who he is and how we we communicate with him. Uh, Number one, we acknowledge his promises and his potency. We either believe God or we don't. There was a pastor of a large church who took a poll of his congregation, a voluntary poll, and asked them certain questions. It was a pretty intensive uh, poll. And he went up from the pulpit and he said, by reading this poll, it shows me that the majority of you are not saved. Wow, shocking. Do we believe what God says or do we not? Do we believe what he says is right and wrong or do we want to play fast and loose with his truths and kind of massage it and manipulate it into the way we want to understand it. We need to be in line. We need to have the mind of Christ. We need to have the mind of God. And it's only through growth in the spirit that we can have those types of things. Now, the other thing is, as we read this, we're going to see this a lot of speaking about God's power, God's glory, his will done on earth as it is in heaven. There's a teaching called amillennialism which basically says, there, and when we go into eschatology, the study of end times prophecy is very interesting. But there's a portion in scripture that it's a literal portion of scripture, a thousand years reign where Jesus will come back on this earth. He will rule with a rod of iron and his reign will be righteous. Our millennialists believe that we're living in the millennium and Jesus is reigning now. I don't know about that. 
you know, and Satan is caught up in the abyss and, and there must be a very long chain and, you know, he's got a lot of latitude because we're not living in the millennium. There are things in the scripture that have not happened yet when we speak about Jesus' rule and his earthly reign and his throne and his rule, his absolute rule over the, over the nations. So amillennialism is, is bizarre. As you start to, to study it, it really doesn't fit with the scripture. Verse 11, give us this day our daily bread. This is a sustenance, both natural and spiritual. Natural and spiritual. God will provide for us. See, the bitterness sometimes in believers and frustration comes where we forget the difference between our needs and our want list. And the lines become blurry. And believers sometimes get angry with God because they feel that they're entitled to something or something hasn't come and God has not provided. When we have that type of view of of God, we have to realize he is righteous and holy. Something's wrong on our end of the communication. He also provides for us spiritually. His word is a a lamp into our feet and a light to our path. In those days, the lamps were not like the, the headlights on a brand new Nissan now where you can see like everything at night. They were little lamps And at your feet, you would only see enough where you could walk maybe three or four feet. So if it was very dark, they didn't have street lights. This was the light to you. And I believe it's purposely said that because uh, it's a daily, and daily, right? Every day. It's not like we get a little bit from God, we get his sustenance spiritually and such, and then we kind of ignore him for the next month. It is a daily walk with the Lord. It's so great, this, uh, I think it's John chapter 4, the woman at the well, when Jesus is speaking to her, she comes with a water pot. And she wants to get some water. And Jesus strikes up this conversation. She really needs this water. She's got to go back to her village, fill this, up, this water pot up. And, you know, he's like, he speaks about living waters. And she's still thinking he's talking about H2O. So she says, you know, give me this water. I'll, I'll never thirst again. This is great. And he goes, you don't understand. So as he starts to explain to her, now the, the transition goes from physical water to the, the water of your soul, right? Fountains of living waters. She is so excited with his idea of, of that water, that living water, that it, the Bible says she leaves her water pot and goes back to the village. She's so excited about that living water that she forgets why she came there in the first place. So God does sustain us. He sustains us naturally of the body, and he also sustains us as spiritual. We need both of those things. When we get through this model, where's the wish list? Very timely being in the Christmas seasons, right? <laughs> giving of presents, I want this, what should I get for this person? And it becomes malls and traffic and last minute, and well, they got something for me, and I forgot to get something for them, and told you about my grandmother who rewraps presents and give them to somebody else. <laughs> but the bottom line is, we all have somebody in our family that does that, right? And they think you're never going to find out. But what's really neat here is that God knows what we need, and he knows what we want. And he wants to give us what we want but he's going to give us what we need first. He's going to give us what's good for us first, and we may not see it right away. Now, where does that fit in with the American dream? See, don't get those two confused. The American dream is great. We live in a free country. We can, you know, rise as high as our talents will allow us to. But the American dream is not spoken about in Scripture. We're not entitled to anything. We forget that in America. Now, does this mean, Pastor Joe, that we never pray for ourselves? We never pray for our desires, as some would, some would say? The answer is no. It's not true. We just put everything in the right perspectives. God knows what we desire, and he wants to bless us with little things, too. 
my son and I, <laughs> we prayed last night because you talk about motives, the motives issue. We prayed um, for the snow because all the reports I read was that the snow was supposed to start at midnight and it's supposed to be a big blizzard. So I'm like, you know what, Lord, I really want everyone to hear the Sermon on the Mount. This stuff is great. It's your word. And my son and I spent last night in prayer, and uh, I woke up this morning. There's no snow on the ground. We're like, Lord, we know that you want it to snow. We know it's coming this way, but can you just, at least for Jamesburg, kind of hold off until, you know, the service is over? And this is pretty good, you know. But the motives were, were good, and, and, you know, the Lord hears our little prayers too. So I'm not saying don't pray for the things that you want, but let's just not turn it into what Christmas has turned into, right? A commercialization about getting what you, need, what you want to get. Prayer is also not just reserved for get me out of this emergency and I promise I will fill in the blanks. I did that as a young person. I didn't know the Lord. And uh, every time I got in a jam, that was the only time I prayed. Lord, <laughs> oh, you're back again, huh? <laughs> what, do, what is it this time, Joe? So, you know, I finally understood what it was to have a relationship with him, and it wasn't just shooting up the flare, you know, the emergency flare. In 2005, and I looked at some of these polls on prayer, it said that uh, pastors were asked voluntarily, now voluntarily, uh, how much time they spend a day in prayer. And the the range was, was a little wide, but it was roughly between 15 minutes a day and 40 minutes a day. Now, because it was voluntary, and if it wasn't anonymous, those numbers might have been lower. What about the average believer? What are we saying when we do that? Because everything that we do or don't do, we make a statement with our behaviors. I've been blessed, uh, and it's, it's interesting too, because they said the older pastors, the older men who've been in ministry a long time, their prayer life was, was longer they prayed for a longer period of times. And I'm really blessed, and I love our, our fellowship, because I'm blessed to have men of God who are older, who are ministers, who have been through what I've been through, and they sit me down and they give me their wisdom. And I listen, because it's a blessing to me. You know, they've gone through decades of ministry. They've made mistakes. And they're trying to pour into me to help me not to make those same mistakes. And these men are men of prayer. So uh, I'm just really excited about our fellowship in a lot of ways. Verse 12, and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Now, you may look at that as monetary, but it's really not. Uh, we look at the parables of uh, Jesus will use money as an example, you know, a, a, an earthly example that the people could understand, but there was a spiritual content behind it. Uh, forgiveness is essential to the Christian walk. We see this in the parable of the unforgiving servant, Right? Uh, God forgives this one servant this insurmountable cost. There's all these talents, and if you do the mathematics on it, it's millions of dollars. This guy could never in his whole lifetime work to pay off this master. And the master said, ah, forget about it. So this guy who was just forgiven, this, and this is a picture of our sin, our sin. So we're not going to get to God by our own merits. It's just not going to happen. It's a picture of God forgiving us. So this guy now goes to a fellow servant who owes him like 50 bucks. You know, when you look at the monetary value, you see it's very little compared to the, the big value. And his fellow servant, his equal, his peer, couldn't pay him. And he shakes him, and he says, you better pay me. The, and he wants to throw him in the prison. When the master found out, he was livid. And the guy who wouldn't forgive the, the 50 bucks, he said, that's it. You're, you're done now. You know, he was punished greatly because of that. So forgiveness is, is, um, is essential. And 
it's easier for us to forgive when we truly receive the grace and know what we've been saved from. There's this great book that my wife is reading right now. It's called The Grace Awakening by Chuck Swindoll. Real great picture of what grace looks like. And when we really understand what grace looks like for us, it is easier for us to forgive others. That servant in the parable didn't have that heart. I want to read, I love Warren Wearsby. Um, I'm going to read a passage from him. Just kind of wrapping this up, and then I'm going to give you some biblical examples of why prayer may not be heard. But let me just read this. It says, since prayer involves glorifying God's name, hastening the coming of God's kingdom, that's two, and three, helping to accomplish God's will on earth, the one praying must not have sin in his heart. If God answered the prayers of a believer who had an unforgiving spirit, he would dishonor his own name. How could God work through such a person to get his will done on earth? If God gave him his request, he would be encouraging sin. The important thing about prayer is not simply getting an answer, but being the kind of person whom God can trust with an answer. I like that. Verse 13. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. A wise man knows his limits, and a wise man knows what his weaknesses are and what can make him stumble. There are some that have this attitude. They know what can make them stumble, but they like toying with this certain sin in their life that could really entrap them. And to me, it's a picture of you know, seeing how close you can get to the fire without getting burned. Sometimes you get burned. So be careful with that. Deliver us from the evil one or, the e- or evil. Some preachers, and I've heard this style, they taunt the devil. You know, devil, you know, we're going to, yeah, just stupid stuff. I mean, you don't mess with the devil. You don't mess with Satan. He was, he's an archangel for the bad side. And, and we really don't realize what he's capable of. And the only reason why we're safe is because of the blood of Jesus Christ. So just remember that. Satan is also the great psychologist. He can send his best men to follow you your whole life and see what makes you tick. Aha, I know what makes you tick. I know what makes you tick. I got it all written. I got files. He's got files on all of us. So be careful when you taunt the devil. He does one of two things, and we can see this. Deliver us. He says, um, he says, lead us not into temptation. So we have temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. And it's not that God would, would dump us into the fire. He's, he's, we're asking God as, as we walk with you, help us, you know, Help us to watch out for those pitfalls and such. Keep us from these things. And again, we can sometimes use our free will to, to play with that fire, and, and it's not a good thing. But Satan does one of two things. Number one, and we've seen this with Job. We've seen this with Peter. He asks, how much father can I, or how much Lord can I torment this guy? And even if the Lord allows him to do it, it's limited. It's limited. So the one thing he tries to do to us is destroy us. That's the first one. The second method is far more effective, far more effective. That's the way that he allows us, gets us in a position to destroy ourselves, right? When the children of Israel couldn't be destroyed by King Balak, Balaam uh, said to him, you know, God's not going to curse his people, but here's a way you can get them. Entice them, you know, get them to... to, uh, mate with these women and have these parties and, and these gods and... Uh, that, that worked. The children of Israel, because of that enticement, because of that temptation, they fell headlong into it, and a lot of them were destroyed because of it. So watch that one. I think the, that the second one is, can be a lot worse. He says, for yours is the kingdom and power and glory forever. 
Notice this is a, a prayer of faith. Do we see it on this world in a limited capacity? The full redemption is not, uh, is not met yet. Uh, so we still see evil in this world. We still see injustice, right? But this is a prayer of faith. A lot of this is a prayer of faith, things that have not happened yet. Now, let me just go quickly through uh, prayer hindrances. 1 Peter 3, 7, uh, and there's more, there's a lot of them. That's to the husbands. He says that if you don't treat your wife as the weaker vessel and you don't dwell with her with understanding, your prayers may be hindered. So if I'm a husband and I'm praying and just, and then I can look at my home life and realize, gee, gee, maybe I should make a few changes here. Uh, another scripture is Psalm 66, 18. If I regard iniquity in my heart, the Lord will not hear. Now, we're all sinners, but there's confession of sin, and there's also sin that we turn into a lifestyle. And if that's the case, don't be surprised if the Lord's not going to hear that. Uh, another one is Luke 18, the persistent widow. You know, Again, it's not the emergency flare every once in a while to, to talk to the Lord. He wants persistence in prayer. He wants a regular prayer life. He wants regular because he loves you. He wants to talk to you. So the persistent widow, only until she was very persistent did the judge grant her request, and God said, uh, Jesus said, and God is a righteous father, a righteous judge, how much more will he grant his children who are persistent in prayer? And the fourth thing is if it's not according to his will. Obviously, if we ask for things that are evil or uh, you know, our prayer is just a never-ending wish list and it's all about ourselves, again, don't be surprised if uh, the prayers aren't answered. So a lot, a lot to this. Verse 14, he says, For if you forgive men their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive men their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. And again, when you see something repeated in, in, the, in Scripture, definitely pay attention. Now, it is what it is. Um, I can't look at this and massage it and tweak it and form it and make it any prettier than it is. This is the way it is. But the truth is, if we are born again by the Spirit, we can forgive. Um, if we try to do it externally it, it, and we're not in the Spirit, it's not going to work. Or we may kid ourselves, but it, it just may not happen. We need to know that forgiveness is also not something that we can just snap our fingers and it's done. Sometimes it's a process. I was um, aware of a pastor who uh, some pretty bad things happened to him, and he, it took some time. And he kept asking the Lord for forgiveness for in his heart. And eventually he went to the person and spoke to them in a calm way, and he was able to release it and let it go. Uh, forgiveness is a process. And if we find that we're not forgiving, we need to ask the Lord, help me, Lord. Because, and I've said this, uh, some have laughed, laughed in counseling. I'm like, I say, all right, let's look at this practically. If you're laying in bed at night and it's 12 o'clock and you're looking at the, at the ceiling and you're thinking about that person and how much you hope that they get theirs, just think of where they are. They're probably sleeping soundly right now, and who's it ruining? You, you know? That bitterness, that unforgiveness can be like acid. It, it could eat right through you. And I'll, I'll talk next Sunday when we finish this chapter about the physiological factors regarding anxiety and stress and bitterness. They really, they release catabolic hormones that literally break our tissues down in our bodies and age us. So not only is this good for your spirit, it's also good for your body and also for your mind. God, God looks at the whole person. But it is a process, and listen, you may have to um, write a letter or a card or um, speak to somebody, and, and that term called closure. But really pray. If you can't forgive, Lord, you've got to help me out with this. This is bigger than me. It's very hard for me to do this. Verse 16. 
And these are going to be the last few verses, and then we're going to... It's such a great chapter, I'm not going to blow through the whole chapter. I want to finish these last three verses, and then we'll cover the next section um, the next time. He says, Moreover, when you fast, do not be like the hypocrites with a sad countenance, for they disfigure their faces, that they may appear to men to be fasting. Assuredly, I say to you, they have their reward. But you, when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face, so that you do not appear to men to be fasting, but to your Father who is in the secret place, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you openly. So the third area is fasting. Now, we've seen many forms in the Bible. Uh, yeah, I know something about fasting. I don't eat for a certain amount of time. But basically, it can be a food and water fast, which, you know, um, physiologically should be done less. You know, you don't want to kill yourself. You just want to deny yourself, uh, you know, um, fleshly things for a while. Uh, it could be a food fast, all food, but you can drink water. And we've seen these different examples in Scripture. Third, certain delicacies, uh, certain things that are uh, very pleasant to eat, that, that can be a fast. And also the Apostle Paul speaks in Corinthians about marital relations and healthy marital relations and, you know, deny yourself for a time and you have to read the scripture and get the context there. But the understanding is that we deny ourselves something that appeals to our flesh. And it may not be a bad thing. Food's not a bad thing. But we deny ourselves something so that the spirit can flourish, and I would add this, I think a fast, if we look at this, a fast can be anything that you, that you want to do, that, that, that you desire, and you put it aside for a while, and you, you commune with God, you're in prayer with the Lord, and um, you know, you'll see how your spirit will be uh, encouraged, and your flesh is kind of abased. But the question that we have to ask is, wow, fasting, do I ever deny myself anything? If I'm hungry, I eat. If I'm cold, I put on a jacket. You know, if my feet hurt, I buy myself better shoes. Do I ever deny myself anything? And that's a question that we have to ask ourselves. Or is life filled with trying to have a facade of happiness? Here's the facade. That if I do things that please me and always make me happy, I will be made happy. That's an illusion. And if you're a believer, all you're doing is digging yourself a deeper spiritual hole with that type of attitude. You're going down instead of up, right? And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to tie in, into this. Jesus says a few times, what was done in secret will be rewarded openly. He says that three times here. Number one, yes, we all understand in the judgment, there will be crowns, there will be blessings, there will be rejoicing. We may see the fruit of our evangelism or charitable deeds or whatever the case may be. So we know in the judgment that this happens, but I submit to you that it also happens here. Here's the reward. A life of true peace and joy, not tethered to the things of the flesh. See, again, many believers have a frustration with their lives because they're walking in two worlds. They're still on the fence. And they find themselves increasingly frustrated. And then they, what they do is they try to follow the world's methodology to make themselves what they consider happy. And it doesn't work. Happiness. The happiness trap. The happiness illusion. See... Some think, and this is a lie, and I thought this. Gee, I, I came to the Lord in my late 20s, and I thought, I met other Christians, and they were strong. They were all, didn't matter who they were, male, female, didn't matter where they lived, where they came from. The Lord put all these Christians in my life while I was in the world. And every time I met a Christian, there was, it was one thing that was the same. I'm like, where do these people come from? Where they, what factory pumps them out? You know? 
they all seem to know everything about the world and history and the Bible, and uh, they all seem to have that inner strength. They have contentment, they have peace, they have joy, and I don't have that. So I would dabble. I'd go to a Bible study here and there, or I'd talk to them and have them pray for me. But, you know, I, I, the old world just kept drawing me back and pulling me back. The lie that I thought was, well, I'll become a Christian, and I'll be moping around, and I'll be miserable, and I'll be chaste, and I'll, and I'll be like a monk, and I'll be cloistered, and I won't be able to talk, and that's tough for me. Uh, <laughs> but when I came to Christ, and I really had a relationship with the Lord, I asked myself, why didn't I do this sooner? See, it's a lie. You know, if you see a Christian who's always miserable and, and, and they have that, just like these guys, they disfigure their faces and they're putting on some type of show, that's not the joyous Christian. That's not the victorious Christian life. Jesus says, I have come that they may have life, eternal life, but also life more abundantly. It doesn't mean we're to be miserable here. We can have joy, we can have peace, we can have real inner strength, we can have conviction. That's all available to us. So that, that's a lie that that's not going to happen once you give your life to Christ. So let's just, in closing, I would say this. Three things that God expects from us, that they come from the heart, that it's not an external show, that we give to others, almsgiving, charitable giving. We help the next person who's also made in God's image if they're struggling and we have the means to help them. And not expect a reward for it. Number two, that we is motivated out of love, that we pray. That if we call ourselves believers, God wants us to reach out and touch him uh, once in a while. You know, he wants to hear from us. That we cultivate an honest relationship with him and not pretend that it's more than that to others when it isn't. That we fast. That we practice, practice in some way denying our flesh once in a while. Again, it's hard to walk in the spirit if we're constantly feeding our flesh. That we practice sacrificial love. And in context... We're supposed to mean it and not do things as a pretext to cover up the truth about our weak relationship with the Lord. If every day, think about this, I say from the pulpit, what a great marriage I have and my wife and I, are, everything's wonderful. But then I go home and where nobody sees it, we're fighting every day and we're, we're on the brink of divorce. What does that say? That it's easier to talk about it than walk a good walk. It's easy to talk to talk than walk the walk. Let us not allow that to happen with our relationship with our Father in heaven. Let's be honest with him, be honest with others, and be honest with ourselves and be challenged through the Sermon on the Mount to have a deeper relationship with him. Take it to the next level. Let's pray.